Scripture quotations for this sermon are taken from the ESV. Good morning. Turn in your Bibles with me to John chapter 9. I have uh, what I like to refer to as my Johnny Cash voice today because I'm a little under the weather. So, um, so bear with me and I will try to be as loud as I can. And, um, well, we will read together all of John chapter 9 and then I will pray and we will get to work. As he, Jesus, passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned, or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world... I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud, and he said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Salome and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was, there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him, since he has opened your eyes? He said, He is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this, son, this is our son in that he was born blind. But how he now sees we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, He is of age, ask him. So for the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have already told you. And you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? 
Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees said, were near and heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word is true, that we can trust it, that we can come and submit ourselves to it and be formed and shaped by it. I ask that this morning it would go out with power through my weakness. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. <coughs> well, I don't know how up on your literature terms you may be, but irony is one of the things that marks a lot of literature. And the uh, gospel writers use it a lot as well. And we can talk about irony in various ways. A lot of times we think of irony as something that's funny. We see it in sitcoms and things like that. Or Irony is something that makes us kind of chuckle, will give us a, a tickle. Something like I read this week that um, the people who make duct tape recommend that you don't use duct tape to repair your ducks. That's ironic, isn't it? It's actually in the name, and yet you're not supposed to use it to repair your ducks. And we all know that duct tape fixes anything, but apparently not the thing that it's meant to fix. Or perhaps I also read this, that there's a, there's a hotel in Sweden called the Ice Hotel, and they have smoke detectors. Odd, isn't it? I mean, I suppose there could be a fire at an Ice Hotel, and you'd want to know that it was happening, but... It just seems funny to us, doesn't it, that an ice hotel would have smoke detectors? So we can think of examples like that and sort of chuckle, like, oh, that's funny, that's interesting. But Jesus and the gospel writers use irony in a different way. He's not trying to make you laugh. In fact, he's trying to pierce you a little bit and maybe twist it just a bit. Jesus says things like, the first will be last and the last will be first. Not so funny, but true. Or he says, the one who finds his life will lose it. The one who loses his life for my sake 
will find it. And in our gospel, this story about this man who was born blind and receives his sight, Jesus tells us the reason this whole thing happens. This whole story happens so that Jesus can prove one point. I've come to make the blind the seeing and the seeing blind. Another paradoxical irony, isn't it? The one who's blind in this story is the one who sees the clearest. And the one who sees is the one who is blind the most. That's the purpose of this story. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to look at this story from the four perspectives of the kind of the characters that we see in this story. And oddly enough, while certainly Jesus is the center of this story, he's not really the main character of the action. He does the miracle, and then he kind of disappears, and the Pharisees and the blind man and his parents have this kind of runaround of investigation, and then Jesus comes back at the end. So we'll be talking all about Jesus, no doubt about that, but Jesus doesn't do a lot in the story that needs that much explaining. But what I want to do is I want to first look at the disciples. I want to look at the, the blind man's parents. I want to look at the Pharisees, and then I lastly want to think about the blind man. And how are they functioning in this story, and how are they reacting? Because Jesus' point in this story, as we're going to see, is he's trying to demonstrate what happens when the light shines in the darkness. We saw Jesus tell his disciples, I'm the light of the world. This isn't the first time he said that in John. He said it earlier in chapter 8. And in chapter 8, he has this whole discourse with the Pharisees that gets pretty heated. They pick up stones to try to kill Jesus, and he escapes. And this story is happening sometime after that. And he's explained to them that he's the light of the world, and now he's going to show them that he's the light of the world. So it's an, uh, this story is an object lesson for Jesus. It's a, it's a sign, as John likes to call them. John doesn't record miracle after miracle after miracle in his gospel. He records particularly chosen miracles that have a deeper, bigger picture meaning. So if you read through Mark or Luke or Matthew, you'll see whole sections of the book where it's just they're bringing sick people to Jesus and he's healing them. That doesn't happen in the book of John. That is, of course, not to say that it didn't happen, it's just not the way John decided to write his gospel. John chose things like feeding the 5,000, healing of the blind man, raising of Lazarus, to depict his character, to show that he is the Son of God. And in this miracle, he's trying to signify that he is the true light of the world. So let's, we'll spend a short amount of time uh, on the disciples and the blind man's parents and then spend some extra time with the Pharisees and the blind man because they are kind of the main characters of our story. But first of all, let's just think about the disciples. The disciples ask Jesus a question. Who sinned, his parents or him? The man or his parents, who sinned? They make it an either-or choice, don't they? They assume that because he's blind, he must have some sin in his life that has led to this ailment or this suffering. And they assume it because that's probably what they've been taught in the synagogue for years by the Pharisees. 
And all they've done is continue the fallacy that Job's friends had when they came to comfort him. Remember Job's friends? They come and they give him all this counsel. And the end of their counsel really is, Job, there's some sin in your life that you're not confessing. You need to confess it. And God will take all this stuff away from you. And Job refuses because he knows, no, that's not true. I'm not, I'm not sinful. I didn't do anything wrong to warrant this. And if Job's confession isn't enough, God corrects Job's friends in the whirlwind when he comes to Job and he says, I did this to display my glory. God didn't punish Job for his sin. He just brought suffering upon Job. Suffering is always traced to sin, but not necessarily your sin. And we might hear this from the disciples and think, well, that's a silly question. Of course that's not true. And we know that. We can confess that. But Jesus doesn't lash out at them. He doesn't scold them. He doesn't say, oh, you're foolish. He just corrects them. It's not that this man sinned or his parents, but the works of God might be displayed in him. And what works of God are going to be displayed in this man? And I wonder how many of us might be quick to say, well, I don't believe that. But function like you, like you do believe that. I mean, some of you may be aware, but a few weeks ago, six, seven weeks ago now maybe, there was a fire at my apartment. Um, in the apartment across from mine, and everyone was safe, no one was hurt. Obviously there was some damage to possessions and things like that, but overall not that big of a problem. But in the days afterwards, there was kind of a running joke of like, well, who, who brought this upon us? You know, who, who hasn't been doing their Bible reading this week? You know, there's a fire in our apartment. Now, we were joking. We didn't really mean it. We, didn't, we weren't writing our dissertations on it. But it's easy for those kind of thoughts to creep in, isn't it? A couple of months ago when I went to Scotland, we had several delays on our way there. Our flight, flight was delayed here, flight was delayed there. It seemed like every flight on the way there was delayed. And the joke became, okay, we're going to cast lots, and whoever the lot falls on is the, is the Jonah in our group. We're going to have to throw them overboard. <laughs> Again, the assumption being, right, somebody has got some sin in their life, and it's causing these delays. Now, again, we're kidding. It's a joke. It's a bunch of Bible students who know, ah, that's kind of funny. But it's easy for those kind of things to slip into our mind, isn't it? It's easy for us to think that the traffic jam on our way to work is because we didn't have our quiet time before we left. It's easy for us to draw these straight lines of causality with our sin and our suffering. But the straight line that Jesus draws is not the sin to the suffering. It's the suffering to his glory. You see that? He says, this man is blind, not because he sinned or his parents sinned, but so that I could show my glory. And if we'll flip our perspective and think about our suffering not as primarily the result of our personal sin. Now, suffering is a result of sin, isn't it? We suffer because there is sin in the world. We live in a fallen world. 
But when we assign our sin as the cause, we begin to hate guilt and shame on ourselves. That's unwarranted. God is in control of every situation that befalls us. And he's going to use all of them for his glory. Andrew Peterson wrote in one of his songs that some, for some reason sorrow is shaping his heart like it should. That his heartache is drawing him closer to Christ than, it, than joy ever could. So the man born blind is not blind because he's a sinner or because his parents were some special sinners, but so that Jesus could make his name known. Now let's think about the blind man's parents quickly. The blind man's parents are brought in to the, by the Pharisees because they don't believe he was born blind. So they're trying to, <clears throat> they're trying to confirm, right? And we'll think more about that when we think about the Pharisees. But the blind man's parents, let's put yourself in their shoes for a second here. Let's assume these parents, uh, let's assume the blind man, he's at least 13. Because they say he's of age, ask him. And the age kind of that would have been accepted at that time was 13. He was a man. 13 was a man in ancient culture, especially ancient Jewish, Jewish culture. So he's at least 13. He's maybe older than that. He seems older than that, than that in the story, but we don't really know. So, but he's in his teens or maybe his early 20s. So his parents have got to be in their 30s, 40s. They've had this son who was born blind all those years. Think of the heartache that that caused for them, the sorrow, the suffering that that caused in their life. Oh, we have a blind son. We wish he wouldn't. He wasn't blind. And then you put yourself, not only just the heartache of that reality, but then you put yourself in this scenario where now the religious leaders and their neighbors are probably looking sideways at them like, huh, they must have been some special kind of sinners to have a blind son. Now, we know that's not true, but they think it's true. And so for years, they've probably got sideways glances at the synagogue. They've gotten hushed whispers as they walked by. They've mourned the fact that they're not truly accepted in the community. And one day they come home and their son is there and he sees them for the first time. And he tells them this story, no doubt. How could he not have told them the story? That Jesus put mud on my eyes and I went and washed and I see. Wouldn't they be leaping for joy? Wouldn't they be ready and willing to track down Jesus at any cost just to thank him? Whether they believe anything about Jesus being the son of God or not. They, he healed their son. And yet when they're brought before the Pharisees, they give the very bare minimum of information they can. And they stand back with their hands up like, hey, it's not our place to say anything. It's not our business. They answer with the simple, yes, he's our son. Yes, he was born blind, which does kind of subvert the Pharisee's agenda, but we'll get there. But then they say, but hey, we don't know how he was healed. Ask him, he's of age. And if you just read that, you might think, well, I mean, that's, that's fair, right? They weren't there, at least not, we're not told that they were there. They didn't see it happen. It's, not, it's not, uh, not out of place that they would maybe not 
be so quick to say, to speak to what they didn't see. But then John gives us, in verse 22, the reason that they didn't say. It wasn't because they weren't there, they didn't want to speak out of turn, it was because they were afraid. They feared the Jews. And John is using Jews, Pharisees, interchangeably here. He uses these terms interchangeably to speak of the same group of people. He says they, he says they feared them because they already agreed that anyone who confessed Jesus to be Christ was to be put out of the synagogue, meaning you're not allowed to worship here anymore. You're out. You're done. You're excommunicated. And so it's not the fact that they're not eyewitnesses that they don't want to speak up. It's the fact that they're afraid of what man can do to them. And maybe even foolishly so. Because they've been probably sneered at and snickered and whispered behind their backs for who knows how long by these religious leaders. Or been told, you must have sinned. You must have done some great sin to get this suffering on yourself. And yet they're willing to keep their place there rather than speak up and say, he told us that this Jesus fellow made mud and put it on his eyes and made him see. They knew the political climate was not right for that, and so they they put their hands up and said, no, no, he's of age, ask him. Well, let me just ask you, who do you fear? Remember, this story is about what happens when the light shines in the darkness. And it seems to me that this man's parents want to have their toe in the light, but hide in the dark as much as they can. They want to keep their place. They want to keep up good appearances. They don't want to be thought poorly of. They don't want to be cast out. They want to be part of the group. But they do want a little bit. They're not denying anything. They're just not willing to say anything. And I wonder if that may characterize you at your office or your your workplace, around your family dinner table, when the opportunity arises to confess Christ, to speak truth of Christ into a difficult situation, into a situation where you know someone's feelings could get hurt or they might, not, they might shun me from the group. I may not be the popular person in my class or the, the cool guy at the office that everybody likes to joke and ham it up with. Are those things more important to you? Do you fear the shunning of man more than the shunning of God? Because Jesus tells us that if you deny me on earth, I will deny you to my Father. Do you fear what can kill your body but can't kill your soul rather than God who has power over your body and your soul? How bold are you willing to be? But thirdly, let's think about the Pharisees. The Pharisees enter this story in verse 13. The man's been healed. His neighbors notice him. They bring him to the Pharisees. And I was tempted to read this early as the the people wanting... I thought they had a bad agenda. I thought they were trying to tattle 
essentially, on Jesus and the blind man. Like, hey, you're going to let this go on? But, but I don't think that's what they're doing. I think they're, they're faced with this question of how can this be? They don't understand how this happened. They've heard the story. They've, most of them, it seems like, know who Jesus is. Whether they believe in him or not is yet to be seen. But they hear the story and they go, this is unbelievable. We need someone who knows what they're talking about, and they think that's the Pharisees, to help us understand this. So they take him to them and they say, this is what happened. The Pharisees begin by just saying, well, what's the story? The blind man tells his story. But John includes a little detail here that had not been included as of yet. Verse 14, it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So now we know it's a Sabbath day. Jesus has done this miracle. He tells the Pharisees the story, and the Pharisees' reaction is, this man is not from God because he doesn't keep the Sabbath. Now, if it's true that Jesus has broken the Sabbath here, that's a big problem, isn't it? Because if he's broken the Sabbath, then he's broken one of the Ten Commandments. And if he's broken one of the Ten Commandments, he's a sinner, just like you and me. And he can't go to the cross and pay for our sins when he has his own sin to pay for. So on the surface, perhaps, we think, well, that's, that's a big problem. He's broken the Sabbath. But we have to think a little deeper about what the Pharisees mean by the Sabbath. They don't mean he broke the Sabbath as laid out by Moses in Exodus chapter 20, or as given by the Lord in Exodus chapter 20, they're talking about the 39 extra bits of oral tradition that they've added on top of the law. They've added all these qualifications of what determines what work is and what isn't work and what you can do and what you can't do. But none of those were given by God. They were put on by man to help people not break the Sabbath. And while their intentions might have been good, it became the law equal with Moses. And so one of those things is that you can't, you can't need dough or clay or anything on the Sabbath. It's against the law. Well, Jesus did that, didn't he? It also says you can't perform any, you can't heal on the Sabbath. Well, Jesus did that too. So by their book, he's broken the law, but Jesus wrote the book. And he says, Nay, nay, I did not break the law. Not so fast, my friend. So as we determine that, we realize, okay, the Pharisees are just throwing stuff against the wall here. They're just trying to find ways to discredit what Jesus has done. But it doesn't work because even some of the Pharisees say, well, wait a minute. How can a sinner do signs like this? Even some of the Pharisees go, I don't know about that. That one doesn't hold water to me because no one's ever healed a man born blind before. How can he do that if he's a sinner? So there's division. And then the Pharisees say, well, what do you say about him to the blind man? And the blind man tells him that he's a prophet. And we'll come back to that, how the blind man's journey progresses. But now that the whole Sabbath-breaking thing has not really convinced everyone, they go, well, I don't think he, this guy was even blind. So they get his parents, and they ask them, 
Is this your son? Was he born blind? How does he see? And why do they do that? It's just another attempt to try to discredit and disprove this miracle. Now the parents, as we already looked at, maybe didn't say all that they could have, but they said enough to dispute the Pharisees' agenda. Well, he is our son, and he was born blind. So try, try they may, but they have failed twice. And so when the parents say, ask him, he's of age, they bring him back for a second time. And when they bring him back, they, tell, they, they say to this, verse 24, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. Now, the first half of that sounds good, doesn't it? Give glory to God. Well, here's some irony. He already is. He already is by saying, Jesus made mud, put it on my eyes, and made me see. He's given all the glory God deserves, isn't it? But they don't mean what we might think that means. In looking up this phrase, it's used often, and most, maybe most uh, pointedly, as a way to call someone to repentance, to come clean from a lie. And you might recognize it from Joshua chapter 7, where Achan has uh, taken treasure from, I believe it's Jericho. He's hidden it under the tent. And um, they go up to battle, and they're, they're routed in battle. And the Lord reveals to Joshua their sin in the camp. Someone has done something wrong, and so they go through the process. They find out that it's Achan, and Joshua tells Achan, give glory to God. In other words, repent. Come clean. We know you did something wrong. We know you stole. Make it right. And that's what they're asking the blind man to do. They're asking him to come clean. We know that this man's a sinner. We know he didn't really do this. We know there's something fishy going on here, and we want you to tell us, and we want you to tell us right now. And the blind man, as we'll see, is going to give them some zingers in this section. But we're going to come to that in just a minute. We're thinking about the Pharisees. They're still in denial. When the blind man essentially tells them, He, I was blind and now I see. That's all I know. They say, well, how? How did it happen? What did he do? And we, again, we might think, well, that's an innocent question. But he's already told his story three times. What are they trying to do? They're trying to catch him in a lie. You, you parents might have some experience in this matter. A child does something, you probably know that they're guilty already, but you're giving them the opportunity to come clean. And so you say, well, tell me what happened. And they tell you the story. And then maybe there's some more conversation. And then you say, well, tell me what happened. And they tell you the story, but a little detail here, a little detail there is a little different. Names have changed. All of a sudden, the time of day is different. They were sure it was in the morning, but now it's in the afternoon. Or they've embellished the story to make it even bigger than it was, or they've tried to minimize the story. All of a sudden, things are added, taken away, things are changed, and you go, oh, now wait a minute. You said earlier that this happened at this time, and, and most children, hopefully, are broken by that. They go, oh, you caught me. You caught me in a lie. You're right. I did it. I'm sorry. So now they're trying to get him to retrace his story so that they can catch him in a lie. 
They can catch him fudging a detail or adding something or taking something away. The blind man doesn't indulge them in their little fact-finding hunt. And he actually asks them, do you want to be his disciples too? And they are offended. Oh no, you're his disciple. The Pharisees now, their pride is pricked and they're not... Their pride is pricked, but it's not broken. It's, em- it's embellished, isn't it? Now they're puffing their chests out. No, no, you're his disciple. We're disciples of Moses. They're trying to claim a higher authority than Jesus by saying Moses is, is who we follow. We know the Lord spoke to Moses. We don't even know where this Jesus guy comes from. We don't know anything about that. We don't know where he's from. We don't know what he's up to. Well, we know Moses, and we follow Moses. More irony upon irony, isn't there? They claim Moses, but Jesus has already told them in the Gospel of John, if you believed Moses, you would believe me because Moses wrote about me. The irony that they're trying to claim a higher authority than Jesus, isn't that amazing? They're trying to claim a higher authority than the authority of all authorities. They don't know that, but they're going to find out. The blind man gives a response, and we'll look at it in a second. And their answer to his response, which is very logical in its conclusion, they say, you were born in utter sin, and yet you teach us. Get out of here. We're done with you. Their pride has been wounded and they puffed up their chest and he gives them a logical conclusion and they say, you were born in utter sin. Now here's the cherry uh, on top of the ironies, isn't there? Isn't it? They've been trying to disprove that he was ever blind. But then they tell him, you were born in utter sin. And they don't mean the original sin of Adam that we all are born into. They're, They're talking about You are a sinner because you were blind. Your parents conceived you in sin because you were born blind, and that's your curse. That's what they're talking about. That's the question the disciples ask at the beginning. That's the question that Jesus answers by saying, no, no, no. That's not it. I'm going to use this to show my glory. And the the Pharisees prove that they do believe he was born blind. Because they say you're born in utter sin. And by their logic, if he's born blind and he now sees, which he does... Jesus did it. Jesus made that possible. So by the words of their own mouth, they've deconstructed their whole effort to prove this miracle is false. And I wonder if some of us in this room are more like the Pharisees than we'd like to admit. Some of us in this room have never trusted Jesus, have never clinged to him, have never run to him, have never found forgiveness in him, and we are stubborn and stuck in our prideful ways trying to hide from him. When the light shines into our lives, we run. We don't let our foot dangle into it. We just run and hide.
But let's think about the blind man and compare and contrast him with the Pharisees here. The blind man doesn't go to Jesus. Jesus comes to him. And that's not always the case, is it? I mean, a lot of the times in, our, in the Gospels, people are coming to Jesus. They're coming to Jesus, and they're coming to Jesus, asking for healing and, and, and help. The blind man does not come to Jesus. Jesus comes to him. The, disciple, the disciples and Jesus see him, and they go to him. Jesus tells his disciples, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to make my glory known through him. I'm going to do the works of the one who sent me while it's still day. Meaning, while I'm still here, doing my ministry, and he performs the miracle. The blind man comes back seeing. His neighbors start going, is that, is that the guy that was blind? He sees now. He was begging, though, yesterday. Is that him? Yeah, it is him. No, no, it's not him. Looks like him, but it's not him. Can't be him. And he's sitting there going, yeah, it's, it's really me, guys. It's really me. And they're like, well, how did this happen? He tells them his story. The man called Jesus. He made mud. He put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Salome and wash, and I did, and I came back seeing. And then he goes in for round one with the Pharisees. He tells an abbreviated version of his story, a story that the Pharisees had no doubt already heard. And then he makes after the Pharisees have their little discussion about the Sabbath, not the Sabbath, they ask him, who do you, what do you say about him? What, 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 what do you say about him? He healed you, what do you say? And the blind man says he's a prophet. That's a good first step. Remember, at this point in the story, he's never seen Jesus. As far as we know, he's not heard Jesus teach. He's not been around Jesus, but he's been healed. And based on that, on that information, he says he's a prophet. He's, he's not wrong, but he's not fully right yet, is he? Then he comes in for round two, and this is where he starts slinging some, some zingers towards the Pharisees. They say, hey, give it up. We know he's a sinner. And he says, whether he's a sinner, I don't know. I don't know. But the one thing I know, I was blind. Now I see. And he's why. He's the reason why. So whether he's a sinner or not, I'm not a theologian, he says. I don't know. But I know this. I was blind and now I see. So when he try, they try to get him to tell the story again, he says, I've already told you all this stuff. I've already said all this. And you didn't listen. And what's he mean by that? They didn't hear him? No, he, they heard. But they weren't listening to, to be changed. They weren't listening to hear the story for the story. They were listening to find reasons that it can't be true. So he says, you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you too want to become his disciples? And that is the blow that really cuts to the Pharisees, isn't it? They go, oh, no, no, no. You might be his disciple, but not us. We're better than that. And then he tells them, 
they say, we don't even know where Jesus comes from. And I don't think they mean physically. They know where Jesus is from. They know his parents. They, they know. They don't know what he's trying to do. They don't understand Jesus' mission. And upon hearing that, the blind man says, verse 30, why this is an amazing thing. You don't know where he comes from. And yet he opened my eyes. So you don't know about him, but he did this great miracle. We know that God does not listen to sinners. We know God doesn't listen to sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. So are you following so far? We know God doesn't listen to sinners. He doesn't bend at their, at their will. He doesn't do their bidding. But if someone loves and follows God and does his will, God hears their prayers. God listens. Then he says, Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. You see what he's done there? He stripped all the stuff away. He's gone, look. I was blind, now I see. The only reason that that happened is Jesus. If he was a sinner, God wouldn't listen to him. So he must be righteous. If he's righteous, and he performed this miracle, God must be for him. Now he's right. His logic holds up, doesn't it? He's absolutely right. But he's still not all the way right, is he? God's not just for Jesus. Jesus is God, isn't he? But he's going to get that very soon. Because the Pharisees say, enough of this. You're born in utter sin. Get out of here. He leaves. Jesus knows. Jesus hears, hey, they cast him out of the synagogue. So he goes and finds him. He finds him twice now, doesn't he? He, he stumbles upon him, I suppose, at the beginning. But he goes and finds him afterwards And he comes up to him and says, do you believe in the Son of Man? Son of Man being a popular title Jesus used of himself to indicate that he is the the perfect revelation of God as man. He is God. It's a messianic title. And the blind man, again, has never seen Jesus at this point. And he says, who is he, sir, that I might believe? He wants to believe. Through this whole journey, he has come to the realization, I need to believe in this man. He doesn't know how or why, but he knows, I want to believe. And Jesus says to him, you have seen him. And he's the one speaking to you now. And the blind man confesses his belief and worships Jesus. And Jesus doesn't stop him. He doesn't say, no, no, don't worship me. Why? Because he's worthy of it. He's worthy of the worship. If it had been Peter or Paul 
or Moses. They'd have said, no, 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 don't worship me. Worship God. But when the blind man falls at Jesus' feet and worships him, he's not stopped or, or scolded. It's welcome. Stark difference between the Pharisees and the blind man, isn't it? The light has shone on both of them, though, in this passage. The light has shined down on both the Pharisees and the blind man. And the Pharisees seek refuge in their own righteousness, their own knowledge, their own self-worth, the darkness of their own pride. While the blind man lets the light peel off the blinders and open his eyes to see the source of the light, Jesus himself. And all of this, Jesus says, is so that I can make the blind the one who sees and the seeing the one who's blind. So I ask you, the light is shining on you through his word. Are you going to hide in the darkness? Hide in the darkness that you and your righteousness are enough? Or perhaps hide in the darkness of the reverse, but the same root? It's pride that tells us that our righteousness is enough, that we're righteous enough. But it is also pride, brothers and sisters, that tells us that our sin is too big. There is no sin too big in quality or quantity for the light to heal. There is no sin too big. I would ask you to be like the blind man. To let the light of Christ shine on you and reveal you. And it will be painful. It will be hard to be vulnerable. And that's what pride drives us away from, doesn't it? It, it drives us to either hide in our darkness of our sin or hide in the darkness of our righteousness. But Jesus calls us to be laid bare before him. Not to wound us, but to heal us. The light will hurt our eyes at first, but we will see clearly. And he ends this passage with Jesus having this last interaction with the Pharisees. Because they overhear Jesus telling the blind man, I'm here to make the blind see and the seeing blind. And some of the Pharisees say, are we blind? Jesus says, if you were blind, you wouldn't have any guilt. But since you say we see, your guilt remains. It's a warning. It's a warning to us to not be, not be fooled into thinking that, that we're not blind. 
to not be fooled into thinking and proclaiming, we see, we see, we, we are the ones. We follow Moses. We follow this. We follow that. There's only one to follow. And what he's saying is, my light has shined on you. It's shining on you now. And yet you still claim to see. Yet you still want to hide in the darkness. Your guilt will remain. Unless you come to me. Unless you run to me. Unless you repent and believe that I am who I say I am, the Son of God. Fully God and fully man. Come to live the righteous life you couldn't. That you think you have, but you couldn't. Come to take all the sin that you think is too big on me. I've come to take it. And I'm going to bear the penalty for your sin on the cross. And I'm going to rise again. And he has done it. He has done it for you and for me. And will you let the light of his resurrection, of his power, of his glory, of his goodness shine on you and draw you to him? I pray that it will. I pray that we could be like the blind man and confess, I was blind, but now I see. Lord, I believe and worship our Savior.